Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. What I love about Jane Austen was that she told an endearing love story. I mean, it's swoon worthy, but she was taking her shots, honey. <laughs> I mean, she was getting her shots in. There isn't one book where it was just, where she wasn't fanning herself and everyone was saying the shade of it all, honey. The shade of it all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, she is a shade queen. The writer Nikki Payne is a novelist and cultural researcher. She deploys a PhD in anthropology for her day job as a tech anthropologist for Facebook. But her love for romance and for Jane Austen fanfic has burgeoned into a second career, novelist. Her Jane Austen remix, Pride and Protest, is due out this November. And in this conversation with the Austin Connection, Nikki Payne talks with us about the stories we tell, our cultural production, how it shapes our view of our history, our desire, our lives, and our world. This is the Austin Connection. Thanks for joining us. We're back with season three. Thanks for being here for this conversation with anthropologist, Jane Austen remixer and author, Nikki Payne. Here's our conversation. Welcome to the Austin Connection, Nikki Payne. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. All things Austin, I love. Wonderful. Let's talk about the novels. Your second is a remix of Sense and Sensibility, which is further down the road. But Pride and Protest is this first Jane remix that's coming out that makes Elizabeth Bennett into Liza B, I believe, a DJ who, quote, gives a jam. And Dorsey, a high-end property developer whose project Liza B is protesting mm -hmm. great setup yeah gentrification and jane austen yeah. tell us how these characters and stories came to you oh man um this is this is such a great question i love this because i read pride and prejudice as a child and something that i always heard like in this space now is that black people don't read jane austen right we can't relate to women of leisure we out here grinding right <laughs> but i was black and i loved it. And on top of this, uh, as an anthropologist who studies like culture and desirability, I ran across this interesting article that analyzed the data from these dating apps. Um, and what it, what it indicated was that like black women and Asian men were the least responded to in these apps. And it was wrapped up in our kind of cultural notions of desirability, who gets to be the damsel and masculinity. And one of the things I was so excited about when I was thinking about my love of Jane Austen was also like with Pride and Protest, I decided to remix these iconic characters and ask like, what if we made this clever and desirable woman black? What if we made this iconic brooding male hero Asian, right? What does it change? What does it add, right? And so I fell in love with them and the story that my DJ, Lisa B and her developer, um, Dorsey F, what the story that they could tell together. And um, I think what I loved about these two characters um, in Pride and Protest, Lisa and Dorsey are stuck in their kind of preconceived ideas about what's right and what's correct. And they think they're at the end of their story when we meet them. But in truth, they're actually at the very, at the very beginning. And I guess that's like kind of a broad theme of the book, right? Like 
live your life like you're at the commencement of something, right? Like, like be willing to be amazed and surprised at new information. I love it. So Lisa, it's Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa B and Dorsey are at the beginning, but what you're finding in their pride and their prejudice, you know, you're, you're going so much deeper just from your, what you've already just said in pride and prejudice about desirability. Tell me more about that. Do you feel like what's going on in the data with that study that you were looking at on Um, social on apps, dating apps. Is that culture writing our impressions, culture creating this? And so you're sort of changing the culture, changing the template to say, this is not what anybody necessarily expects. So let's change it for everyone, for all of us. Right. Um, I love the way you say that because a lot of culture is like it's the stories that we tell each other but also uh it's our cultural production like what what movies are we making what books are we reading right like that is part of the stories that we tell ourselves about what's right and what's correct and sometimes even the presence of a different thing can change the entire canon of what people see as possible and like imaginable like that's a famous kind of like representation matters thing right but but also like I, I also wanted to make these characters highly desirable, right? Because of that, those those um, notions, those kind of cultural ideas of who gets to be this kind of damsel in distress or who, you know, who gets to be this um, amazingly attractive leading man, right? Mm-hmm. So I did crank up those notions of desire and desirability. Like it's it's definitely, it's got all the spices if you're, you know, <laughs> maybe go gift it to your grandma. But <laughs> you, you have on your website somewhere, if you've got, if you love Jane Austen and you've got like spicy sauce in your handbag or something, <laughs> like this is for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so it was, it was like active for me to like, crank up the desirability for these characters because I I felt like I was doing some some bit of work there you know and that is work that is work um it is hard work to create joy and that our joy and our stories are something that's reflecting something very important Mm -hmm. and when it's about women that's also important and from female consciousness this is all work and it's all important even though even as it brings joy and the classic male writers have also been about desire and joy from dickens to shakespeare shakespeare did a lot but a lot of what he did was love family relationships joy and we call him a philosopher and a humanist and a genius and jane austen is also all of those things Absolutely. One of my favorite Shakespeare's is Much Ado About Nothing. And it is essentially about, I mean, it's classic enemies to lovers, right? But it's yes. also <laughs> it is. about these people who are forced to change their minds about someone, right? Yes. It's like, there's there's such a story there. There's such an enduring trope about um, thinking every, you, you know, everything there is to know about someone and allowing yourself to be pleasantly surprised and experience joy as a result of that pleasant surprise. Yes. And I love that much ado about nothing example, because they're also like prodded on by their friends. It's so contemporary. They're making such fools of themselves. <laughs> you say something, Nikki, that is amazing, that your books are cultural commentary for the hopeless romantic. Uh, How are your books cultural commentary for the hopeless romantic? 
I think um, I've I've read a lot of romance. I like cut my teeth on like old school, racially problematic Joanna Lindsay. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yes, I have just probably read them all, probably too young to read them all. And one of the things that I love about romance is its ability to like center a woman's desire and pleasure. Like, yes. so, like this is important. And this is why she loves him because of these things that this character does for her. But also the, the one thing that I felt um, that we could push a little bit in romance, I understand that romance is escapism, but we could poke a little bit more fun at what we're seeing in society, right? Sometimes we don't have to eat the tropes just because they're, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we don't have to eat all the buffets at the table. Like if there's patriarchy or, you know what I mean? Like there can, there can be instances where we can get tongue in cheek about it. So, I mean, and what I love about Jane Austen was that she told an endearing love story. I mean, it's swoon worthy, but she was taking her shots, honey. <laughs> I mean, she was getting her shots in. There isn't one book where it was just, where she wasn't fanning herself and everyone was saying the shade of it all, honey, the shade of it all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, she is a shade queen. And the, the, the sharpness of commentary doesn't have to be like devoid of swoon. And that's the thing that I just love about Jane Austen. And the thing, I'm not going to say that I did as perfectly as she did, but um, I definitely wanted to incorporate that side eye with the swoon, you know? Whoa, love the way you say that. So another thing, I mean, and you, I, I mean, listeners can already hear, like you have an incredible way with words, um, your side eye with the swoon. There's just so much that you are, are so good at just connecting these deep themes to just our culture, you know, like and our lingo. And I love it. Um, and, you, and another thing that's your tagline along these lines is uh, classics bougie ratchet. Okay. Um, this is almost too pop culture uh, for me to get, um, but I do see that that's, I recognize that immediately because I um, go to a gym. <laughs> so I, get, yes. I get my Megan Thee Stallion um, and Savage Bougie Ratchet. And I, I love that, um, that refrain that she's doing there. And you've like adapted that refrain to classic Bougie Ratchet. So this is in a way... Nikki, your vibe, um, I might call it. Like, how are you bringing, what, how are you bringing the bougie ratchet vibe <laughs> to Jane Austen? Yeah. And in some ways you're saying this, but how does Jane lend herself well to that bougie ratchet vibe? Oh my gosh. First of all, I love this question because this is personally, um, when I read about Jane Austen heroines, like they are in except for emma who's her own she has her own basket of troubles like (laughs) most of jane austen's characters are like somehow either kind of financially uh going through it like they are like not in this place like they have high minds and high ideals like they know what should be done right (laughs) but they're in this place where they can't actually execute on their own like level Mm -hmm. of of expectation for their station Right. And so when we talk about like bougie ratchet is this connection of like, hey, I am absolutely that bitch. However, (laughs) I'm in a situation right now where I cannot be the entire person that I want to be. And and how do I do that? And oftentimes marriage was the way to to ascend to that level of of you know, um, Catherine DeBerg, you know what I mean? But these these women were already like kind of internally ready for the the level 
to which they would ascend, right? But they had to go through all of this class-related bullshit, all this money, like all of this kind of um, male heirs inheriting every, some random male cousin inheriting all of their money. They have to manage all of that um, in order to kind of get and ascend to their essential spot. I love it that you you connect the bougie, bougie ratchet vibe to basically money yeah. um, today and then also in Jane Austen, which that in some senses that hasn't changed. Like you say, the expect, expectations put on us and that we put on ourselves for who we are, where we fit in, um, how we're accepted and what power we have and what agency we have. And you said something else, Nikki, which is like internally, internally they're ready, you said. And I love that because I think that is so much what's going on with Jane Austen too, which is that like they're getting, they, they can control themselves. They can control their own inner resources and what they can't control is everything you're describing, that outer, yes. those outer pressures and forces in society, which are in in every case like you say except emma which is the inverse yeah so it's also about power but it's yeah. just that the heroine has it which is powerful in itself to show that but it's always about power and goodness and yeah. what we do with our power yeah. and and i feel like a lot of times we recognize jane austen for showing these us these profound things when it comes to family and love and relationships but she's also showing us and you're a great person to say this with she's showing us power and agency in society. She is also making a commentary on the basis for our culture and society as well. Absolutely, absolutely. One of my favorite, favorite Jane Austen heroines is Anne Elliot. And mm -hmm. Anne Elliot's been through the ringer lately, but-, but um, She's lost that bloom. She's lost that bloom. But, um, but I, what I love about her is that externally, Everyone um, like puts all these things on Anne Elliot. She's just, you know, she's the middle kid and her sisters think of her this way. Her father thinks of her this way. And everyone's just like, oh, poor Anne. But internally, like she's, she's a kind of a like boiling cauldron, you know, like mm -hmm. she's, she's kind of low key bitter, you know, like she's. Oh yeah. And sad. And just sad. profoundly sad. She's roiling with emotions. She's feeling things at a, at, at, with such depth and emotion. And that distance between the way people see Anne and the way she's experiencing them and herself is just miles away. And so many women live that way. And that double consciousness of like, you know, like so many, so many people of color live that way of like having to put on this face for their boss or for their husbands and family and, and being forced to be a roiling like, thunderstorm inside and that I just think she people relate to her because they've been in this instance where you're just like I'm about four five seconds from wilding out <laughs> like if you just like I, internally I am about to blow but all they see is this smooth surface of just helpfulness oh she's very practical she's very useful she's very capable right but Ann Elliot she had her commentary on all of her family do you know what I mean she had the numbers yes. she had the yes. numbers she does and she she's a badass in spite of everything you described and even more of a badass because she's been harmed by everyone around her she's being harmed and she's still going like you said you you put it so beautifully just going in this this smooth sailing on the outside 
what you know you're making me realize something about persuasion and that story which is really powerful which is that we see Anne through that we we tend to see that as the classic love story and we're just totally in a way all of us just not necessarily talking enough about the fact that it's a it's a journey that Anne goes through on her own she there's something we did a post on this at the Austin Connection called the choice and I I feel like it's so important and really but you're making me see it even more strongly Nikki which is she makes a choice before she knows Wentworth is coming back to her Mm -hmm. she makes a choice to love Wentworth and and before she knows William Elliot's character she makes a choice to just love Wentworth and to be okay with the regret and sadness that she might carry with her. She makes a choice to be strong and to just make that choice for love. And it is really a profound evolution for Anne herself. And then Wentworth shows up, but only after that. After she has already made the steadfast choice for herself yeah. and love. Like, honestly, she had already done the revolutionary act. You know? Yes. She, she really had. Yeah. He came back alive. This is the Austin Connection. We're talking with author and anthropologist Nikki Payne. Her upcoming novel is Pride and Protest. It's a remix of Pride and Prejudice that makes Elizabeth Bennett into a DJ named Lisa B. She's protesting a big development in her neighborhood from a big developer whose name is Dorsey. I think you see where this might be going. It's Jane Austen and gentrification. And it's, of course, also romance. Nikki Payne says her romance involves people coming together across racial and ideological divides to connect, and that's intensely exciting and romantic. Her formula, as Nikki says it, is side-eye with swoon, and we're here for it. Let's get back to our conversation with Nikki Payne. cultural anthropologist. You actually, you have a PhD, you're a doctor. I am. Well, and you never say that. Not the useful kind, but (laughs) (laughs) I think you're proving that wrong with everything that you say. It's extremely useful. And, you know, and it's useful enough that you are, if you don't mind us saying, you are actually employed by Facebook and tech, tech world to understand us and to understand humanity and our desires um, and the stories we tell, I suppose, all goes into, I mean, so it's, it's useful enough that you're, you know, you're actually one of these people who actually is using their degree (laughs) and a lot, and a lot of degree it is. So, (laughs) so Dr. Payne, you are a wonderful person to ask. What, what is your expert takeaway right now on everything that you see? Because you are a massive engager in these exciting evolutions that are going on in, in romance and Austin fan communities. Um, to me, it seems like they, the voices in these communities are expanding and it's getting more inclusive. It might not be happening fast enough. But And, and just generally, what, what do you see that is or not exciting or what there needs to be better of going on in the fandom communities that you're engaging with? Oh, man, I have seen literally the best and worst of fandom. Um, one of my favorite authors 
Abigail Reynolds. Oh, Abigail, if you're listening, I love you. (laughs) Um, When I had this small idea and I was like kind of saying, oh, I'm thinking of writing. Like she was one of the first Jaff authors to say, write it, like shout it to the rooftop. She was so engaging. Beth also, I mean, I honestly could not have found my courage to write this without these trailblazing white women turning around and saying, write it and and I'll bring you along as well. So that was like, I'll just put that out there, that that community was like that. Also, Bianca Hernandez, huge, yes. huge amazing support system. Um, however, there, there, there is this contingency of, um, of individuals who feel like threatened by new, like our changes or adaptations, right? Who feel like somehow like their favorite adaptation g- comes under the radar, right? So like, let's say if you say something like, I love bologna and they're holding Turkey and they're just like, what are you saying about Turkey? You know? <laughs> and so like the, the argument somehow is that like your idea or your way of thinking about Jane Austen will somehow replace theirs, right? It's just kind of like a, um, this, this, this fear, I feel like of, of being replaced. The, the thing that I'm saying here is that the community can be really, really reactive to new adaptations of Jane Austen. Really reactive because um, at the core of it, a lot of people go back to Regency novels, go back to period pieces to try to reflect on a time of, um, of order, right? And a time mm-hmm. where certain types of conventions were unquestioned. It yes. seems like a clearer, uh, like a, a safer time for a certain yes. type of individual, right? Yes. And that people find comfort in that. People find they do, comfort. and and that was that is not historically accurate that image, and it's not meant to be. It's and and it it also was not even historically accurate in Jane Austen's time. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a lot that's left out of. There's a lot that Jane Austen is leaving out. I think that she. But would be all, I tend to feel like she'd be all for uh, expanding it, but maybe she would, maybe she wouldn't. Who cares? If she wouldn't, she'd be wrong, you know? So like, (laughs) we can still take these incredible stories and this template. To me, the, the only way they stay relevant and alive, whether it's Shakespeare or Jane Austen, is to expand um, the voices. And um, do you, don't you feel that so much of our, view of that history being this comforting, nostalgic, mm-hmm. quite white place comes from adaptations and the adaptations who have given us the sense. Um, if you read, you know, Regents of History, writers like Gretchen Gerzina yeah. um, are, and many others are, and scholars, um, but I mean, just revealing like Black Lives of the Regency and before and after in Britain and elsewhere. So it just makes you see like even the even the history that we've it's culture writing that history. It's culture writing that view of our history in a, really in a way that's not accurate. You're absolutely right. And those depictions of the past in this um, in these like really um, white spaces and these orderly lawns is doing cultural work. It's doing white supremacy work as well, right? Yes. So like, I think like challenging the past is still an actual like futuristic take, do you know what I mean? On on the world, like to to rewrite and reimagine Regency in its full yes. color, right? Is 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 revolutionary. 
I think you just hit on really what is very key, which is reimagining the world. Um, you know, and you, and you just said the word imagination. So, so little, so few times we use the word imagination. And imagination is so important in the way we are viewing um, our history and also our present and our future. But I, I think a lot of times what it comes down to is, do you, th it comes down to systemic racism and institutionalized racism. And everyone, wherever you are, reading Jane Austen and engaging in this fandom needs to ask yourself, do you feel that our history contains institutional systematic racism? And if you are not sure, you need to go and read and you need to engage in some conversations and get a solid answer to that question. Because I think when you realize that the, the right answer, <laughs> the answer to that question is yes, then you realize that it's very powerful. It's very welcome. It's a wonderful, joyful thing to be expanding and reimagining our histories, which is actually what Jane Austen was doing in her time. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that like, I want to dispel for for anyone is like take away this like sense of harm that you have for kind of expanding your scope like somehow reading this new type of book will erase your favorite 1970s persuasion right <laughs> like somehow watching the netflix version will make the 1970s one disappear like everyone is imagining that like Jane Austen adaptations are on this hydraulic piston service that like, if you like this, then this one goes down, right? And so like, <laughs> there's this this aspect yeah. of that, right? That, that expansion can't happen, right? You can ask the Grinch who stole Christmas that, you know, his, the, the way he was imagining his part, you know, the, the way that it had expanded three times its size, it will always surprise you that there's always more room. like. What, again, uh, sorry about the cultural references, but like at the end of Hamilton, right? The world was wide enough, you know? Yes. Like what would happen if you just sat down and said, the world is wide enough? It's not going to break me if this happens, you know? Yes. Or is it going to breathe new life and relevance and new insights um, into our stories and our histories. There's there's always room for, you know, like-minded people finding each other. Like no one is against that, right? Like going back to your small town and finding that person you connected with, right? But some, some there's a part of romance that is, um, the exciting part is kind of about finding out something new, right? Or experiencing something new with someone who thinks differently than you, right? And I think, this may be my bit about what is exciting about um, romance and loving someone is like melding these two like crazy diverse minds together. And um, I think that romance has an opportunity to show us what um, the world could look like if we expanded our mind. I mean, I keep saying this over and over, but like Lisa and Dorsey are this classic example of, you know, imagining that this person was a certain way. No, this isn't a spoiler, but when in my book, when Lisa first meets um, Dorsey, she um, mistakes him for the help, you know, because she has this expectation of expecting this big boss person to be white, you know, and she just completely mistakes him. And it's her own notions of this and his own notions of where who she must be in this neighborhood that immediately trip them up that they have to get over. It. And that's that's again, that's the work of engaging with anyone outside of your 
your social circle. It's like, what do, what do I think about you? And how can how is that challenged by me just knowing you? That's awesome. What what was your first encounter? You said as a child, what was your first encounter with Jane Austen? And what was that reaction like? Oh, man, my first encounter with Jane Austen um, light was clueless. I was obsessed. I wanted to be share. I wanted she had this diverse set of friends and she was really rich and it was like she was she thought she knew it all and then I found out that that was an Emma adaption and I'm like Emma who was it was Emma and then I started reading Emma Emma was my first Jane Austen and I as a young person I loved Emma um as a like as a 40 year old woman I'm just like honey you know? <laughs> 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 like now like I've like graduated to Anne is my favorite heroine but I loved how sure of herself um, she was. And she just gave me so much confidence to, to just say it, you know? Maybe you'll get like slapped on the hand, but say what you're feeling, honey. <laughs> and um, and she just she just knew um, her little corner of the world. And yeah. as a teenage girl, that's hard, to, that's hard to get, you know? It's hard to get that level of confidence about yourself. So I just loved Emma. I loved Emma. Yeah, and it's okay to like make cringing mistakes. Yeah. This is a person making, this is an entire classic novel about someone just making cringing yes. mistakes. Yes. And somehow it survives 200 years and we're reading about her. So I guess in, in my little high school life, I'm okay. You know? yes. So it is a great high school novel. Yes. No, it really was. And then um, from there, um, I read Pride and Prejudice. And, you know, this all came out around the same years, like 1995, 19, you, know, you know, so like, Clueless came out, I think it was around that same time. I was just like 95, 96, 97. I was just a wash in Jane. Do you know what I mean? It was like insane levels of Jane Austen coming my way. So I just started reading these books and um, watching all the, the classic miniseries, seven parts, breathless, you know, like <laughs> I was, I, I was just obsessed from there. Like nothing made me feel more protected or like, um, I just kind of had a tumultuous background with a lot of like, you know, chaos and disorder, but like nothing made me feel like calmer than like the, the cool attentions of like Mr. Dorsey, you know, he was just so attentive to her, but also just not, you know, over the top. I, I don't know. I just, I, I loved how he, I loved how he loved her because it was perfectly calibrated to Elizabeth Bennett. You know? Yes. And it seems like, you know, you're engaging when you're engaging in Pride and Prejudice, um, you're engaging in a story that en encapsulates these wonderful things that you just described, but then also acknowledges and then even tr translates into humorous uh, passages the challenges mm -hmm. of despair you know disparities marginalization that feeling coming from where you were coming from nikki um with like you said a, a background f where you felt like it was chaotic and where you weren't finding that structure do you feel like jane austen and those stories have a way of really uh speaking to readers yeah i mean I, me personally i just loved the i loved the sense of, of rules of engagement of decorum, right? To say like, if you love someone, you can just run up to them and just like throw them over your shoulder and run off into a cave, right? There are all of these tiny rules that everyone had to 
manage and it actually increased the angst, right? Because you had to go through this many hoops. And um, to this day, I, I never like a kind of like insta love romance, right? I love the I love the incremental realizations of love. The slow burn. Oh man. Oh man. Jane Austen has ruined me for the for the you know for the slow burn. But. Hearing you say that, Nikki, and then also I'm always mindful of your expertise uh, in this conversation as a re cultural researcher, you're, you're making me realize something, which is these rules of engagement, as you put it, translate 200 years. And it's, you know, and it's striking me that they were very much up for debate during Jane Austen's time, right? Like we see a really, we see plenty of bad examples with Mr. Collins and Darcy's first proposal, even very harmful examples. Um, they're very much up in the air. There's plenty of chaos even where, where in Jane Austen's time, but she builds in this thing that 200 years later is a very current thing, which is consent. Yes. It's like these heroes that are, and heroines, and, and of every gender, the people, the humans in Jane Austen are just engaging in a way that's playful and challenging. And also they're strong enough to be respectful. It's incredibly romantic. Oh, oh, it's incredibly romantic. It, it really is. Tell me about the writing process and, and writing all of this into oh. contemporary life. Oh, man, the I enjoyed writing this so much. It was honestly quite the escape. A lot of people would say, oh, you know, you work you have this family how do you have time to write and sometimes my answer is like what do you do if you don't write you know what I mean? like what are, what are people out here doing <laughs> um and so for me writing just it saved me it saves me every day it is absolutely my saving grace so i love 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 imagining my characters like thinking about um the main characteristic of elizabeth bennett or my character lisa b and their like sense of place in the world. And they're kind of judgmental. Like what is the worst thing you can do for a judgmental character with a, with a high charm equivalent is put them with a super awkward like person who doesn't outwardly show who they are at first, right? And like that's yeah. a recipe for disaster. And so like the thing that I try to do in writing is what is the worst possible thing that could happen to this type of person, you know? Uh, what is the worst possible thing that could happen to a bubbly, vivacious character like Marianne? You know, like what what are the types of things that could happen? And just and I, I I try to think about that in terms of worst because what I'm trying to do is actually tease out their arc. Their worst fears have to come alight in the book in order for them to be on the other side a better person. You know, they can't stay the way they they were when we started. You know. What a wonderful thing to do with story and art and fiction. And it really does sound like such a joy. And I can't wait to encounter these characters. Me either. I can't wait for you to. Well, thank you so much, Nikki. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Okay. There it is, friends. You have it from Dr. Nikki Payne, cultural anthropologist by day, remixer of Jane Austen on the side. She says it, and we believe it. You can have swoon, as you do in Jane Austen, while at the same time taking your shots, as she says, just like Jane Austen did. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. You can find more conversation and community at the Austen Connection 
You can sign up to have it all dropped right into your inbox at our Substack newsletter at austinconnection.substack.com. That's austinconnection.substack.com. See you there.